Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Michelle Haygood, and this is On Air, a podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalem people, and today known as Port Townsend, Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. Hi, thank you for being here today. I am really pleased to be bringing you a conversation with a few people, but we're starting out by meeting Aaron Assis, who is a current Centrum artist in residence with us at the time of this recording, and who has been working with a variety of people in town and at the state parks on a very exciting project called Fort Words, which we will talk a little bit more about in a moment. And Aaron has put together a series of conversations that accompany this installation. And we are very, we're very honored to be presenting those conversations as part of this podcast and very excited to share a project that, that is happening on site. So hi, Aaron. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah. Uh, so I background is always a tricky question. Um, artist is the easy answer, but what does that mean? I think it's different for everybody. And uh, what I like to focus on really is not as much to do with object making as it is to share stories and inspire people in the built environment. Um, definitely like to focus on underappreciated histories or underexplored parts of our world and, you know, connect different levels of inspiration to um, people's personal interests and just try to make more from what's there instead of adding more new things to the environment around us. Um, but I think specifically with regards to the residency, uh, this is my, my second residency with Centrum. And the first, which was this time last year, uh, proved to be really inspiring for me. Um, and I'm really grateful for having had the opportunity to be invited by Centrum to, to come do this really kind of with the point of being looking to explore uh, project opportunities. It wasn't I wasn't really setting out to come here and deliver uh, a known product. It was just to come out here and let let the park, let the fort, let the people all sort of have a role in inspiring something that I was hoping could come of it. Um, and immediately after landing here, I knew that would be possible. I mean, the, the grounds are, are, are magical in their own sense. The, the people here all have wealths of knowledge to share. And really the only challenge wasn't, you know, what to do. It was just how to, how to wrangle all of the things into something that would be deliverable and, and simple enough. 
Um, and then here we are one year later with the, the delivery of Fort Words, which hopefully captures some of that magic and some of the voices of those people and does it in a way that inspires the public in, in a unique and new way that challenges the way that we think about a lot of things, but challenges it for the better. Yeah, thank you. Um, when, when you first approached us with your ideas for how you would spend your residency, it was really fascinating to me to learn about the role that collaboration with different um, levels of bureaucracy and um, your, your previous experiences with other historical sites and other architectural entities that you'd engaged with. And could you just give us a visual for the people who can't come to the site um, or to entice those that are local and can come experience it? Could you just give us a little bit of a tour of what is uh, what we're talking about today, what Fort Words is? Uh, yeah, so the Fort Warden uh, amongst many other things, old buildings that have been repurposed for different things, chose to focus on the 12 decommissioned battery sites that were part of the original fort. Um, they're embedded in the hillside, on the beach, um, in the woods. They're, they're beautiful. And they just naturally have kind of been blended into the rest of the park landscape. Uh, a lot of the buildings at the foothills are a little bit more trafficked and, and have grown into new uses and new purposes for the public. But the, the battery sites really just serve as these follies in the in the parkscape otherwise. And they just kind of sit there. They're very well used. They're very well loved. They're very well explored. And I think that was kind of a, a catalyst in terms of being a visual backdrop for the project, which really became about um, giving voice to the voiceless and trying to take some of the, the, the stories and the spirit from the site at large and using some of these beautiful walls that don't serve a, a technical purpose anymore other than to just be these uh, relics of the past um, to apply some some quotes from different eras of the park's history spoken testimonies oral histories voices from the tribe voices from different conversations just to try to show a little bit of of this you know spectrum of of different perspectives different historical chapters and just little teasers around the park just to show people that these buildings, though they may look like they once served a purpose 100 years ago and maybe don't anymore, they, they still do. And everything that happens here is all part of the history of the site. And even though it's not active per what it was originally designed to be, it's still active for its new use and will continue to be active in its next iteration. And really what we wanted to do is, is just with the simple application of words on a wall, which everybody can appreciate, everybody can understand, you can find them, you can ignore them, you can dig deeper, you can do whatever you want with them just allowing this moment in time to kind of represent that transition between everything that's brought us here and everything that we have to look forward to. So the, the basic visual is take an inspired walk through the old batteries, find these quotes, 23 of them. If you can find them all, you'll win a prize. No, you won't, but maybe you will. Um, and just ma make them your own. You know, I mean, they're, they're all different things. There's more information about them if, if you choose to go deeper, but I think on as standalone things, as standalone you know, excerpts of, of larger conversations. I think they're relatable to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I literally just got back from exploring the grounds and um, was really struck by, well, some of them are very, very starkly kind of loud voices, 
you know, um, just because of placement, like some of them are on a solid color. And, and if I can just share, you were, you were, you got a permit to do these under the, um, understanding that you were working with areas that had previously been graffitied and so had been covered up by paint. Um, and so in a way this was sanctioned graffiti as you've called it. And so, um, so there's a lot of variety in the types of surfaces that you're engaging. And I can tell you are making some really um, thoughtful aesthetic decisions as you were doing that. There are some that are very obvious. There are some that you really have to hunt for. Um, and when you talk about the space being active today, it you know, the words definitely, I feel like, bring a sense of activation to it for me in terms of all the different connotations that that kind of architecture and that placement within the landscape, all the connotations those have for a variety of people. In many ways, those, those placements can be sites of trauma. They can be sites of nostalgia. They can be, you know, you see quotes that reference these as being part of people's childhoods. And then there's references that are more about an ancestral connection, you know, and about um, kind of the pre-building <laughs> moments. Um, and then there's quotes that have a strong reference to just the uh, ecology, the trees and the, and the, um, the natural beings that, that are all around it. And so I, I, found, I found it really striking the diversity that you were able to bring in. And it's, I encourage everyone to see it. And you'll have documentation of this. You want to share where people can learn more about it if they can come in person or if they can't. Yeah. Um, and so obviously I, I am always an encourager of people to explore in person. I know times are challenging right now, but it's, you know, the park is vast. And I think as long as people choose to do so, who can choose to do so responsibly and respectfully, I think it's a great treat to wander around the hill and wander around the batteries and, and find them. Um, for those who can't and or for those who can um, see it firsthand, there'll be a, a digital resource, fortwords.com, uh, which at the time should be live at the time of this, this airing. Uh, it'll be an interactive map that basically just coordinates or triangulates where these quotes will be. So if you are more of an explorer and don't want to see that ahead of time, don't look at it ahead of time. Um, if you do want to know where you're going, want a roadmap, or just want to learn more about what the source of the quotes, you know, where they were pulled from, um, that'll all just be on this digital interface. So it'll be a, a simple map. Uh, click on the point of interest, see the quote, and click to learn more. It's it's going to be a pretty straightforward thing. But these quotes are pulled from these, you know, sometimes vast, very colorful transcripts of of oral histories and conversations, and um, they. <laughs> There are more than just the 23 that are out there. There are hundreds of them. Um, some of them definitely made me chuckle. Uh, some of them made me mad. Some of them, they, they do all the things. Um, but like like the quotes themselves that are out uh, as part of this project, they're really all designed to not to artificially showcase a, a spectrum of, of content and personalities, but to actually showcase the real spectrum of content and personalities that are all part of this site. Not to mention the fact that everybody who's going to come visit it is going to have their own personal interests and things. And we're all different people. We're all di interested in different things. And I think the, the broader you can cast that net, the better chance you have of sort of tickling somebody's interests. And this is not 
the type of project that's really designed to do anything other than inspire everybody in a unique way. And hopefully everybody who passes through or takes an interest uh, will come out of here and they'll have a, a conversation, maybe more about something that they didn't otherwise, you know, have as part of their experience or expectation coming here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that brings up to me something we've talked about that's important to you in terms of sort of the intention behind your project, which is about, as I understand it, sort of inciting conversation and activating engagement, um, getting people to move around the park and to look at these things in a new way. Um, and, and I wanted to also just note that you, um, as part of this, you're engaging in a panel discussion as well, right? So some of the programming that supports this is going to be exploring, um, this is in collaboration with Northwind Arts Center and the Port Townsend School for the Arts. So I would also just like to ask you, in relation to the panel conversation you're organizing, which is um, largely around uh, thinking about creativity in public space, I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit about your interest in public spaces and how you've really kind of undertaken that as a central, as I see it, a central mode of how you operate. And I know you also think very fluidly about your role in terms of, um, it seems to me like sometimes you're acting from the position of an artist, but you're also acting from the position of a facilitator in terms of really trying to um, corral public interest and ideas. Do you, Can you expand on that a little bit? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the great, if, if you talk about public space, then you can't really understand it without also talking about private space or the privatization of things. And I think if we're really basic about it, private is for, you know, it's of your own private ownership, your own private control and public is everything else. So public really to me kind of feels like the place where we all come together, the place where nobody owns anything and the place where we all kind of share our collective experiences. And then we sort of parse off into our own little private enclaves So in a lot of ways, it's a little bit counterintuitive to me to have the places of creative interaction happen in private spaces when the place where everything actually comes together are in these public spaces. The problem, though, is is public spaces are complicated in this country. And I think, you know, you get into a lot of the the bureaucracies and the regulations and the control. And um, when there isn't a single voice basically determining what's possible or what can happen there, and you're also you know, in a public place, you need to sort of be respectful and responsible to everybody in a community. Um, the, the utopia of public becomes very quickly sort of challenged by the, the, the realities of what it means to actually activate in public. And I think that's where sort of the spirit of being, you know, maybe being professionally fluid comes into play where you're not always just an ideator, but sometimes you need to be a facilitator or a collaborator or an understander or historian, or you need to respond to the situation if you want to inspire in these domains. And I think, you know, with most projects, there's never going to be one hat to wear. Like you're, you're going to have to respond to multiple restrictions, multiple sort of perspectives, multiple opinions about what makes sense and doesn't make sense in a particular place. Um, and that's just the nature of those, of the beast, you know, and and I think 
on the one hand, it's really frustrating and it's, you know, not, not always the most fun, you know, maybe you don't get the most bang for your buck that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, it really is the most rewarding place to do work because the work becomes quickly about the people who receive it and interact with it and engage with it in a way that is their own because they are in this comfortable public place and you don't have to cross into a private threshold. You don't have to be in an art space or a you know private consumer space or a private anything where you're beholden to those rules and regulations. Um, if you can pull it off to have the things live in the in the public domain, then it really is just for everybody. And I think there's a, a lack of preciousness preciousness that makes it beautiful, but there's also like this you know opportunity for that work to be shared and those ideas to just be circulated and really be owned by people um, in a way that's you know less elitist, a little bit more inclusive and just kind of balanced across the board. So a, a lot of big words and a lot of big ideas in that statement, but it's just like the only place where I actually feel the work is meaningful. You know, as soon as you put it behind a door and put a lock on it, then I don't understand the point for, for myself um, in terms of you know putting the energy out into it and trying to share it with people. Um, also, I've always sort of been pridefully you know, interested in as, as broad a spectrum of people as possible. And it's, you know, again, as soon as you choose a private locale for something, you're, you're also then choosing a, a particular target audience. And, you know, there's a time and a place for that. And I'm certainly not speaking poorly or in, in any way, shape or form on those types of things, but definitely want to keep it a little bit more open than that. Want, want things to land on people who I otherwise wouldn't, you know, necessarily be directly targeting. And I think it's just the only place to do that is in public. So we're bringing two conversations um, that you have been having with people um, among a few others. And can you share a little bit about what this component is in relation to the installation? Because this is more of a, this is a a different layer that um, is expanding our ideas around the project. So given the nature of this project as something that was really trying to embody different voices and really trying to inspire different, you know, um, visitors to the park in different ways, it, it seemed really hard for me to represent that wholly in any way, shape or form. And I know that we don't have the time to get, you know, 600 people in here and interview all of them. But I, I felt it was really important to represent some of those critical voices um, in this interview. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking with people who are d- more directly related to the collection of the oral histories, people who have critical roles uh, with the uh, native tribes, people who served different functions or lived on the grounds um, in, in its transitional period between what it is now and what it was as a military outpost and, and general historic contexts. Uh, there are a lot of you know, layers to this. So we're going to just pick on four or five representative voices from the, the, the spectrum of everything that can be covered here um, and give them a little bit of a chance to share, you know, not just their roles in this project. In fact, that'll be probably pretty minimal, but just share some of their stories and some of the reasons why they think the work, just some of their stories about, about life, about the work that they do. And one of the things I can't stress enough is the project is not a walking experience through the fort. The project is about, you know, 
engaging people who you walk through the fort with. The project is about learning about where these you know stories come from. The project is about understanding how many years these you know grounds have sat this way and how many years they've been developed for. The project is about who works here now and you know what stake do they have in in the park and in the land. The project is about what do you like to do on you know on your days off when you're strolling through the park. Um, the project is about who do you want to share things with and when you get excited about something new, what does that mean for you? Um, the project is about what can we do next? You know, I mean, it's not just about the park and it's not just about art and it's not just about history, but it can be about all kinds of new things that haven't been discovered or explored yet. So the project is really just kind of an excuse to, to have any number of conversations about the value of this park um, in our region. And I think you know, you pick and choose the way to represent that, but the only way that it really starts to make sense is to, you know, bolster and amplify more and more of the voices. So if four is a sample of 40 and 40 is a sample of 400, I'm, you know, just anything more than one is better. So we're, we're going to talk to a few. Uh, well, thank you, Aaron. This has been a real, a real pleasure to be on the sidelines and also to be supporting your residency. So Centrum's, Centrum's role in this has been primarily to... Um, give you a space. And we didn't commission the project. You brought this to us. And our main goal with the residencies is to give artists a place to flesh out their ideas and, you know, in best case scenario, make some of their dreams come true. (laughs) In your case, you know, you really, um, instead of your residency being a very inward experience, as it often is for people when they come here, they come here often to escape. (laughs) (laughs) connecting with a lot of people. Yours was the opposite. And, you know, I was happy to um, be able to help introduce you to some people, but was also really grateful to learn through the people you were able to meet. And I was learning alongside of you in terms of the processes and the folks in town who were a resource for you. Do you want to give any nods to folks who were a part of this whole process and say anything about their involvement. Yeah, I believe it or not, this is how I retreat is by going into communities that are maybe a little bit far away from home and then just, you know, getting to meet all of the the I don't know, special people doing, you know, great work especially in this part of the country. It's been it's been a real treat for me, but obviously um Centrum for, you know, not just putting me up for one residency but two. Um it's it's really i i can't say enough about how important it is to actually be here and to actually like feel the space and get to know the people and get to really give a project idea a chance to breathe and chance to to create itself um the city of port townsend and the port townsend arts commission um for providing funding for the project uh wasn't necessarily an original part of the plan but once the project started to come into focus it started to feel like it had a great public value and the commission heard the pitch and uh, agreed and provided uh, funding for a lot of the hard costs that went into making this possible. And I don't know if it would have been possible otherwise. So that's hugely important. Jefferson County Historic Society um, for basically doing so much tremendous work on the side of oral histories for, for a long time, uh, working hand in hand with me, both to give me access, but also just to conversate about how important these histories are and, you know, start conversations that hopefully will go into the future about trying to pull these things out and really trying to bridge the gap between 
you know, history that feels dry versus history that feels relevant. And I think we're living history right now and it just becomes more and more important to recognize personal voices as a part of history and not just, you know, the dry textbook facts. Um, the Jamestown Sklalem tribe has been tremendously inspiring just to, to talk with some of the, uh, people in that community and just learn more about the story, the, the sort of pre-development story of this land and just even more so hearing about the way that people have interacted with each other over the past hundred years and just grown together to, you know, really appreciate the land as a collective instead of, you know, as something that could be more contentious. And it's just one of the, has been one of the most humbling pieces of this project. Um, On the fort, there's, you know, great groups, the Coastal uh, Artillery Museum and the Friends of Fort Warden group have both been different focus uh, focuses, but really passionate people, um, wealths of knowledge, very willing to share things. Um, it's been, you know, again, like the, it feels like the list goes on and on, but these are all people who have had a lot of really meaningful things to share with me going through the process and have helped kind of pull this all together. Um, Washington state parks, none, none of this, we're, we're in a Washington state park right now, um, dealing with, um, permissions at a state level can be complicated. And there are some really, really great leaders in Washington state parks in this region. And they've really worked with me at a, especially challenging time, um, to pull this off and make it possible. And I give them a huge amount of credit for, for rolling with it and really helping, you know, create something meaningful for the people in this region and for Jefferson County. And I think that hopefully this will, you know, can be some kind of a, of, of a model to follow in, into the future and to just see that these things that, you know, aren't just the, the value of these types of efforts that are maybe a little bit different from the, the normal standard permit process, but can provide great value because they are a little bit different. Um, and even more than that, I think it's just been like the, the laundry list of you know, visitors to the park that you get to talk with or, you know, friends of friends who are connected to all of the organizations and agencies I just listed. Uh, it really, it, true value in any type of work in any field, you know, it always comes from these like interconnections. And I think when you're talking about anything to have a, that wants to have some kind of a community impact or some kind of a personal impact in a public situation, uh, it's just, again, it's tremendous to just have such a long list of people to work with and to have only positive things to say about all of them. It's, it's something that I feel tremendously lucky. I feel like a better person for having met these people and having worked on this project. And I think it's a great testament to the, you know, Jefferson County and Port Townsend communities. And I think that we are sitting inside a great national treasure in this park. And I just hope that this project at some point in, in, in the future history can just sit back and, be a small little blip of, you know, how we tried to tie a couple of disparate parts together and really just try to celebrate what's here. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for bringing this here and for being so generous with your time. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And now we're going to hear from a couple of, um, a couple of these folks. Do you want to introduce us to the two conversations we're going to listen to today? Um, so first, we're going to listen to uh, Marlon Holden, who's a Jamestown Sklalem elder, uh, and very excited to have a conversation with him about 
the the historical relationship between the the tribe and the land and between um the development of the park and sorry the fort first and then and then the park um but marlin is also a great storyteller and he will tell us many stories about his own personal experiences here and just how the relationship between the tribe and the surrounding community has evolved over the years um we're going to follow that up with a um dynamic conversation with Shelley Levins, who's the executive director of the Jefferson County Historical Society, uh, where we're going to talk a lot about the value of oral histories in our contemporary society, and also a little bit about how those oral histories really bridge the gap between um, our, you know, sort of maybe more antiquated understanding of history and the the contemporary value of storytelling as a a part of history, um, and how that ties into this project or other types of creative initiatives as to how we can share those stories that are both historic and contemporary um, in ways that are a little bit more accessible and digestible to the general public. So definitely looking forward to both of them. And uh, with, with that, we're going to jump into Marlin first. Okay. Thank you. So I'm pleased now to be joined by Marlin Holden, uh, Jamestown Sklalem elder. Uh, Marlin, we just went through a little bit of technical difficulty to get on this call. I appreciate your patience. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, you and I have spoken very briefly about a number of things, but I really wanted to, you know, put this call, um, on record to talk a little bit more about some of the great stories you have and just some of your relationships with the fort and with the land. And I kind of wanted to start with a very big, broad question about, uh, the tribal relationship between the fort and the land, and just hear you talk a little bit more about the background there. Okay, okay. Well, I think we'd have to go back way, way back in early times. Uh, the Sklalems came across the Straits of Juan de Fuca from 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 uh, Victoria, and they settled in the land between the uh, uh, Macaws and the Hood Canal, and they've been there for hundreds of years. The the ground that the fort sits on now was tradition was uh, tribal land, and and I'm aware that it's 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 not our land. It's our it's our our um, our land that we had before, and so when we start there, we start to look at the development of the tribe as it was in Port Townsend. That was uh, where Chief Chesamoka was uh, lived. And he he was uh, I believe he was a man before his time. He he uh, did something back then in the 1800s when some people may have thought he was a traitor. Uh, he understood how the his, their life was changing in regards to settlers moving into the to the Port Townsend area. <clears throat> And so he, um, known that they were going to try to go to war again, and he told the settlers there that he was going to sit on a rock, and there's a there's a statue there now, and if they were going to go to war, he was going to warn them so they'd get out of there and nobody get hurt. And some people may think that that was, you know, bad of him to do, but not. Totally, <laughs> because I might not be here today if he didn't do that. 
and there'd be a lot of other people that wouldn't be here today on in regards to the war that may have happened. But they came to reasoning that that wasn't the best thing to do, so they called it all off, and so he didn't have to do that. Now, he he understood because some folks took him down to uh, San Francisco Bay, and if anybody's been down there, know that bay is pretty, pretty huge. And he saw their, the big ships, and they were all heading towards the northwest. And he, he knew that they weren't going to win any kind of a war because it would be overwhelming for him. So he came back, and he, he started talking with his, with his, with his tribal folks and you know, knew that their way of life was over, but they still had to do two things. One, acclimate into, into the group that was coming, meaning they may not be fishermen anymore. They may have to work in, in mills. They may have to change their way of, of uh, getting money. And But he also was very clear in his in his speaking that I picked up on anyway, is never forget your culture. Always live your culture. And that's what uh, what we've done. And the it's interesting that Fort Warden uh, was a war machine back in when I was born. I was born October 2nd, 1942. <clears throat> and we all know what was going on during that time. And the gun and gun placements and everything are still in that area in Fort Warden. But over the years, it's been it's been a neat thing to watch that it it changed from that type of post to a open post that they'd have different programs in there now that help uh, people. And it's moved away from what it used to be. But the interesting thing is that the officer's role is still there, and so are some of the buildings that it was when it was a when it was the Fort Ward and uh, ready for war. So the the relationship that we have had with Fort Lord, uh, Fort Warden came through a program that started uh, many years ago, actually. And it was um, brought in by the Bella Bellas, which are up by the Canadian border. Uh, there was a paddle to Seattle that happened, and they were there attending that, uh, that meeting. And the chief of the Bella Bellas invited everyone to come up in two years and start the long journeys. Now, the interesting story about the long journeys is that there were two kids that were around 15, 16, were getting themselves in trouble. And uh, they just had a bad attitude and taking some drugs. And so they put, uh, the, they went before the elders of the Bella Bellas and, and they told them they were going to put them out on, a, on, a, on an island out there by themselves to think about what they were doing. Of course, the newspapers got a hold of that and made made all kinds of bad things out of it and they were they were abusing these kids and all kinds of, but that wasn't Indian people's way of doing things they they put them out there uh, with a specific plan and the elders told them <clears throat> told one of them I want you to come back with a vision and that was his that was his uh, plan he had to come back with a vision 
And they were out there for gee, a couple of weeks, three weeks, something like that. And they did. He finally had a vision and came back. <clears throat> and when he went before the elders, he told them, "Bring back the long journeys." <clears throat> now, what that meant was that there were tribes all over the Pacific Northwest here on on the water that were friendly with other tribes, and so the chief uh, of a fishing village or of uh, of the tribe would work for two or three or four years to get up enough uh, gifts. And then he would send a runner out to these tribes that he wanted to to invite. And they would have, he would give them so many sticks, which meant that's how many people could come to his, to his party. And so he would meet them on the beach and he would say, which means today is a good day. <laughs> and we're, we're glad you have arrived. So they would come ashore and then they would have food, you know, take care of them, gifting, and all of those kinds of things. And so that is how the journey started and how the Squalums got back in on uh, Fort Warden. Uh, had a landing down there that was out around the, the, the dock down there, the Port Townsend docks. And I was a, I was a skipper for six years on our canoe, the Lacanum, which is one of the brothers of the seven brothers. <clears throat> and I, when I first, when I got down to six years of being a skipper, then I kind of took over the Port Townsend landing. And that's when the <laughs> we start to get back in with with the fort in regards to relationships and those kinds of things because I went down and there were, we were running out of room down on the down in the poor towns inside and so I went into uh, met a young a lady from poor towns who uh, name was uh, Carla Maine and her and I. Uh, she was a fabulous person. She knew a lot of the volunteers there. And so her and I worked on moving the landing down to the fort. And we uh, talked with them, with the, with the wardens down there, and we worked out a plan for them. And they were very cooperative. And, and so we started a, a really good relationship with them. And that's where the landing is uh, as of today. And uh, a lot of things have happened during those journeys. One I want to share, because this one was, this was, a, this was just incredible. Uh, as the person working down there, or was in charge down there, I would have what they call a skipper's meeting before the night before they all went, they all would head towards the next, their next stop. And all the tribes were involved. We had tribes from Vancouver Island. We had them from all out on the coast. And sometimes we'd have 30 canoes in there. And when you get 30 canoes, you have a lot of people because they have backup, backup support that, that travel with them. And, and so, um, there was a group that came down from Vancouver Island and a chief. And after I got through explaining the tides and everything, uh, on the way to Port Gamble was their next stop. 
this gentleman walked up to me and he says, do you have enough time for us to talk with you? And I said, sure, I've got all kinds of time for you to talk to me. And what he told me floored me. <laughs> I get a little emotion when I think about this. Um, he um, had his uh, sub-chiefs with him. He was a chief. And he said, we would just like to tell you that we are so honored and so pleased to be here to see what's going on. <laughs> and his point was that Vancouver tribes didn't get along with the white folks and vice versa up there. And so in his journey, when he stopped at Port Townsend, he was just flabbergasted on how well we all work together and praised us for that. And he, and he said this, he said, I'm so glad, I'm so happy that our young ones are here to see this because that's important to us. And so, you know, <laughs> think about that. It, um, we were part of his kids seeing how people can work together through these journeys. And and help each other out and work and be friendly and happy and and all of those kinds of things. So that was a that was a huge huge thing for me. Yeah. And uh, it was for the tribe as well because we do try to do that, try to work with other people and you know, do the do the right things. So Fort Orton had kind of brought that into uh, into focus for us. And as things were going. The, we were in different places at the fort. Uh, they would give us a spot. Well, <laughs> the, the the long journey was getting so many people that we were running out of space. And so we elected to stay, keep landing there on the beach. But we we went up to the uh, fairgrounds, the four towns and fairgrounds, and I talked to the managers up there and spoke to them and, and – uh, told them what we needed and we'd like to have a stationary place to, you know, to uh, bring our, our folks in on this journey. And, and so and it wasn't reluctantly, they were, they, they took a chance. And so the first landing that came in, there was quite a few people. That fairground is not really big, but it probably had 200 people or more in it. Maybe a little more than that, uh, <clears throat> and so they only stay over one night, and then they next morning they leave and and head for the next next stop. <clears throat> so I went down to talk to the manager and see how things were going. And by the time I got there, that everybody had been gone, and so I went up to the manager and I said, "Did everything went did it go okay?" Is everything fine? Is there anything we need to change? Anything we can make things better? And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, all those people that were here are gone now. And I don't even, you can't even see where they were. They had cleaned that up behind themselves. They cleaned everything up. And when they left, you couldn't even tell they were there. And he was so impressed with that. And that happened every year. And so we spread some goodwill that way as well through the journey. <clears throat> so um, the chief, uh, 
Peter Mohan is what his name was, but his name was up. And they called him Chetamolka. He was my great-great-grandfather. He was the chief during the, the Indian Wars. And he, uh, like I said before, he was kind of a man before his time because he did things that that were not usual. It was unusual. Um, he treated the, the white settlers with respect, and he did everything he could to keep keep everything uh, on, a, on an even keel and, and uh, so that the transition that they were going through was difficult enough uh, to be able to make that, that easier. I or the Prince family, which I'm a part of in the royal family, probably wouldn't be here today if that did happen, mm-hmm. if he didn't do that. And there may have been a lot of uh, settlers families who may have stayed there in, in, in generation for generation wouldn't be here today because of that. So it's pretty significant. One, one of the things I, I kind of wanted to finish with Port Townsend is it, is, uh, it was uh, a pretty neat thing. We, I had been there for about eight years doing the, during the, the welcoming meeting and, and all of those kinds of things and keeping things going. Uh, the gifting um, from uh, the tribe would be a number of things, blankets and those kinds of things. But as I watched, uh, uh, well, one little group that didn't get much, <laughs> it was the kids. And so there were some really fine people in Port Townsend. Uh, Carla, she helped me a great deal, and I got to know more people. And, and as we moved around and talked with them, and they started to understand, and I did a lot of speaking down in Port Townsend, so they started to understand uh, how we operate. And it became one of those things that really started to uh, melt together, so to speak. But this one little group... Uh, I, I was kept on watching, and I said, you know, we got to do something about this. And it was the kids. And the kids um, didn't get any gifts because they gave them to the elders or, you know, the ones that would come in. So I, I got our, our artist, a really fantastic guy, and I made a, an appointment. I, I learned about a sixth-grade teacher, art teacher, down in, in uh, what they call uh, the blue... Blue, not the blue swan, but the blue, yeah, that tall bird, I can't remember what it was. But anyway, we went down and talked with her, and we told her about the, the journey and what we would like to see help her class with if it, if it was all right. We, they give all kinds of different gifts out, and one of the gifts was a little paddle. And so it was something that was, that was, um, easy to make and we made all of the all of the forms for them <clears throat> and we handed them out to the sixth grade uh sixth grade uh, class and so our artist uh and he's a carver he um went down with me and so we started to teach them about the the gifting and what uh, the paddles were all about and and we wanted them on the day of the landing to be down there and we would have them give the gifts to the kids that were in the canoes. And so they worked on them for, oh, gee, a couple of months. And I, we went down there twice a week when we first started. 
and to watch those kids was just incredible because they were really into it. They were they were coming. Is this right? Is this right? Want to make sure it was right. And uh, so it uh, worked out real well. And the day that uh, we were going to give them to them on the beach, but everything happened so fast down there that it didn't happen. So I invited the parents and the kids back to have dinner with us. And uh, then they can give them. And uh, one of the gentlemen told me on his way past me, he says, I've learned a great deal today. And when they came up to uh, to eat, I turned and I talked to some of the the pullers that were there in line. I said, would you mind if these folks uh, got ahead of you to, to, to eat? There are, there are guests and they said, no, come on. So they came, all of the, the family members got in line. And so they went through the process of eating and all of those kinds of things. And then it came time to give the gifts. And so we called all the kids out from the truck, from the canoes. And there must've been about 15 of them, I guess, 15, 16 of them. And we called the kids from Blue Herring, Blue Herring School. Mm-hmm. And they came and they gave the gifts to them. And it was really something. And uh, so we went down the next week and talked to the class, see how they, how they liked that. And they were sixth graders. And so he said, we want probably want to do this next year. So what classes do you recommend that we, we, we have it? And they said, seventh grade, <laughs> that's the class they were going to be in. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was really something and it was enjoyable. And we want to pick that back up again when, when we get, uh, get back on the long journey and it, and it starts again. So it's been a, it's been a rewarding, it's been a rewarding trip for me and we've done a lot of good things and, and, and the people of Port Townsend have been really, really nice. They start they start to understand us. And I think that's what it took. Just, and it just gets bigger and better as we go. So, you know, the Fort Warden has been a, a piece in there. My dad worked down there actually when I was, um, when I was a kid, I was born in October 42 and he worked down there for about six or seven years. And the, and he was worked on like the PUD. He did the wiring and those kinds of things on the high tension wires. And there was, I think about nine to 10 crew members when he started out and there was only about four left. And then my mom said, that's it. You're, you're done. You're going to go do something else. Uh, Cause they got burned up on the poles and that they didn't have the safety stuff they have nowadays that they back then. So, so that ended his career working down there and we moved back to school. But yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a good journey for me for the last 20 uh, some years. To be able to yeah. to be a part of that growth of that of that uh, journey down there, mm-hmm. and getting to know the, the a lot of the people. I, like I said, I've spoke at a number of places down there, and and have built some good friends, and and they understand us, and they uh, it's been it's been kind of a interesting phenomena because they 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 understand it was our land, and they respect that. And they make comment about, well, it was your land first, you know, we're invited and we're guests here. And, you know, they just have a good attitude. And I think it was because we worked hard at it. You know, we, 
we don't want to fight anybody. We'd rather be friends than fight somebody. And there's misunderstandings between cultures anyway. And so if we can share our culture with them to, so they understand what it is. And then, you know, we're good. I'm, I'm half Indian and half Norwegian. And, and, uh, I've got two good cultures inside me. I, I love them both. And, and they're, they're gratifying. And, and I've, I've gained a lot on both sides. And so one person asked me one time, he says, well, how do you choose Indian? And I said, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're, you're down here in the Indian. I said, yeah, I am, but I'm also Norwegian mm-hmm. and I have, I have, it took two people to make me and I'm one person yep. and I have this incredible cultures within me. So I'm not picking one over the other. I'm, I'm the same in both. Like, how can you split yourself? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. <laughs> that actually connects back to the point of working together, right? As you are the combination of these two people, like all these relationships in the Port Townsend area are a combination of the different cultures, the different people, the different histories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, and people... Um, have got to know us. We've had uh, down there. We serve dinner and we feed all the folks that are down there. And the and the cooks are just they're fantastic. They really enjoy. It. It's the same people coming back, and they just say we enjoy it so much down here. And people are so nice to us and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. so you can't beat that. Can't beat that. Well, Marlon, I think I have I have one last question for you before we we wrap it up. Um. I think one of the the things, you know, that I was most interested in in learning more about your story and getting to know you a little bit better was just to really appreciate the the power of story, right? The power of making things about our history personal and understanding where we are today through the experiences of others. Um, I'm curious what, what, if anything, do you think the future holds, both in terms of, you know, continuing to tell the story and or just the the Port Townsend area? Oh, well, you know, it's interesting that you'd ask that question. I have, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting on into age, mm. but I had a young man talk to me and we got a, we're going to, uh, he, they're going to have a, a, a male get together, uh, a growth thing. Mm. And, um, uh, and they asked me if I'd be be a part of that, and what that means is that I've got a lot of a lot I can I can give to these young young men coming up. Some of them, you know, in our this day and age, sometimes it's confusing, confusing big time to what's going on and why they're doing what they're doing. But I believe I can bring that stability in there to help them understand what their responsibilities because you know the tribes have got a responsibility i've got a responsibility of passing on what my grandparents passed on to me one thing my grandpa told me one time we were on the beach and and he had a favorite uh, place there uh, stump that he would sit every afternoon out in the sunshine in the summer well there was a there was a bottle floating it wasn't plastic it was back there in the days when it was glass and i was chucking a rock trying to hit it and Boy, he says, Sonny, stop that. And, and I stopped right away because he, he, he yelled at me. And he told me, he said, you go pick that up. You might, if you break that, somebody's going to come along and cut their foot, and it might be you, but you could take that up and 
take it to the garbage right now and don't do that ever again. And, you know, and that, uh, that, uh, put it in my mind when I came home and started fishing and crab and I kept a, <laughs> kept a garbage can in my boat and I'd pick up all the trash. It was people throw it out in the water just mm. because of what he was saying. He said, keep the place clean, keep it clean. And so there's a lot that we who are getting up in age can pass on and, 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 and have the responsibility to teach our kids the rights and the wrongs of things. You know, because the world change doesn't mean right changes, although it says in the scriptures it's going to, the rights will be wrong and the wrongs will be right. But uh, we, can still, we can still hold our, our pride in, our, in doing the right things. So I'm, I'm glad I'm having an opportunity to continue to do that because it'll help. It'll help them in the, in the future days and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think the, the power, the ability, the wherewithal um, to bestow that wisdom onto the next generation and really just try to encourage positive behavior and decency is is so refreshing to hear rather than come up with some other idea um, for the future. I think that's that's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. I, I appreciate that. You know, it, it is, I, I've seen too many programs fail. I was in corrections for 30 years and, you know, uh, programs are programs, but the truth is the truth. Yeah. And that's an overwhelming thing. I mean, I had I had uh, a lot of teachers in my life, and they weren't all in school. <laughs> I learned a lot from a lot of people, and uh, and the strength that you get from that, and knowing knowing the right from wrong continually. And doesn't mean I didn't screw up. I mean, I did for a while until I got got my feet under me and got going again. But but yeah, it's um, it's I believe I take it seriously that it's the younger people need to be guided. They need to, to hear stories. They need to know what, what's right and what's wrong. And I think they're looking for that. They just don't know how to sometimes. But that's our that's our main objective as elders in the tribe is to take those young folks and, and teach them because they taught me. They taught me when I was growing up. Yeah. Marlon, I think that's perfectly said, and I think that's where I'm, I'm just going to say thank you. This has been an honor talking with you about this. Um, I, I look forward to following up with you um, and, and sharing this more. And um, just I generally appreciate your time and your wisdom and your insight. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm here to help you anytime you need it. Appreciate it. We'll be knocking on your door again soon, I promise. Okay, good enough. You have a good day. So switching gears a little bit from Marlon Holden, we're now going to talk with Shelley Levins, who's the executive director of Jefferson County Historical Society. Um, Marlon really did a great job of serving up a lot of uh, historic context, a lot of you know great storytelling. And I think now we are in for a treat to hear a little bit more about oral histories and the value that they can serve in a more formal context, but also how they can create or connect to uh, creative sharing and a more intimate understanding of, of history through story. So with that, we're going to shift gears to Shelley. So 
So we're now being joined by Shelley Levins, the executive director at the Jefferson County Historical Society. Uh, good morning, Shelley. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, we've we've been talking a lot about the history of the four, and we've been listening to people talk a lot about their personal stories and really trying to help better understand all of the richness that is embedded here. Um, but I know you've been working a lot with oral histories, transcribing them and sharing them and archiving them. Uh, and I'd really be curious just to hear a lot more about where that project even started, what it means to you, and you know how and why you feel that this information or collecting information in this way is so important. Yeah, thanks. Um, I would consider myself an oral historian. It is a profession, and uh, it is a passion of mine. It has been for probably almost 15 years now. So it's something that I, since I became passionate about it all those years ago, bring with me to um, many of the institutions that I've worked for or projects that I engage in and actively seek it out. And it's, it's a good question. Why? Like, what is it about oral history? And I think um, I have to go back to the first one that really impacted me. And it was an oral history with a gentleman named Harold Trout, and he was uh, in his 90s, and he was part of the Pennsylvania State Police when they were still called the State Constabulary, and he patrolled Pennsylvania on horseback, and so he told his story over about, I think it was around 12 or 14 hours of interview time that we had together, the story of his life, what life was like then, um, and his job. And it was so much more than sitting in a studio and interviewing someone. It is an experience and the interviewer is an active participant in the story. And I felt like I got to know his soul just as much as his story. And it was an example of how having read about and prepared for the interview, you read articles and you learn about factual information and whatever a written history can be. And then you enter into the space of the oral history. And it is so rich and so deep and goes so much further beyond what could ever have been recorded by journalists during the time or historians who have studied the history and are writing about it. And so um, it provided it and it continues to provide a window into people's lives, their emotions and state of mind at the time of historical events. And, and also just everyday mundane details that are never written down or recorded and can only be found within um, a, someone's personal story that they care to share. And then I think I'll, I'll add to that is that after this incredible time getting to know this person through the privilege of interviewing him, uh, it was about six months after we uh, did our interviews together that he passed away. And so that was another moment where it became very clear to me that if we don't 
actively pursue the, the recording of oral histories of people in our community, those stories, that information, and that, that feeling of that person and the impact that they had within their space in the world will be lost. And so it's become, from, I think from that point forward, become a passion of mine to uh, seek out projects, to seek out, and, and not necessarily be the one doing the interviewing, because I think that, you know, the, I think where the oral history sector and his, his historians and, and that whole space is shifting is really in, in sharing authority, and that museums are doing that more and more so as well. So uh, interview projects that happen entirely within a community are, are really, really wonderful. And, and just being able to facilitate those kinds of projects through um, whether it's technical expertise or guidance is another place and role that I, I love to be a part of. Um, so yeah, and I think a, a piece of this, right, is that oral histories uh, and something like a 14-hour interview with someone, it's, it's an undertaking for any institution or person, and, um, and it can be quite exhausting for the participant as well, for the narrator, as we call them. Uh, so, it, you know, if you break that out into two-hour times and you're using a studio and you have equipment, um, it, can, it can be quite a bit of resources to, to make a project like this happen, especially if, like I was a participant with the Boeing Oral Histories Project and their goal for the Boeing Centennial was, and this was the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, their goal was to do 100 oral histories for the Centennial. So that's a major undertaking. It takes big funding and grants to do something like that. And then there's this aspect, right, of how do you then care for these precious stories and how do you provide access to them to the public? Because, you know, with our museum collections, with the stories we collect, it, it's wonderful that they're there and they're preserved. That's one step. But if they're not accessible to the public, you really haven't done the full job. So a piece of that is, um, you know, the quandary around digitization and migration of, of different types of audio and video recording over time as technology advances. These are things that archivists now need to become experts in, is how to migrate that kind of data so that it does stay preserved and isn't lost on a compact disc or a audio cassette. And then the accessibility piece, and, and that's where um, with our oral history collection at JCHS, which is quite large and growing, uh, we now have uh, a little less than 600 oral histories in our collection. And that is really where we would love to focus. One is, is writing finding aids so that people know what's in the collection and they can easily search and find what's there. And then um, providing digital access to that material. And I think that having that as a priority for our institution is, feels really important to me and exciting. And then continuing to collect. 
So one of the projects that we're engaged in right now is working with a wonderful partner in the community, Sound Experience. Their um, uh, program is with the Schooner Adventurous. And uh, many people have, their lives have been transformed and changed by their experiences with this vessel. So we are working with them now to record some of those stories. And that's really exciting. So um, I think uh, oral history can be about any topic, um, about uh, with all kinds of people, either with um, trained professional oral historians or you know, with people with youth in particular too, right? It's a wonderful way for youth to connect with elders in their community. I mean, it just has so many aspects to it that feel wonderful and um, exciting to me. I, I think it, it's such a beautiful sentiment to add something personal to, to the word history. I, I know growing up, history was always kind of a school word. It felt a little bit dry and factual. It was textbooks and homework and things that felt maybe a little bit less inviting. Um, and I think when you when you think about histories as being just compilations of experiences that people in the past have had, and those facts just come from those experiences, what you're saying is really a beautiful thing. And I'm curious, you know, how just in your mind personally, um, how do you separate the personal story from this idea of historical fact? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, right now is a really wonderful time to be asking that question because I think when we look at what has been preserved in history as historical fact and what has been left out, in particular when we look at textbook content, a lot of people are talking about this right now, right? what were school children in Tulsa, Oklahoma taught about 1921? What were, right? I mean, we wanna know why things have been left out and what has been written down and by who and why. So there's, you know, historical fact um, and memory are very much tied together, but also um, can be, can be can be toyed with and played with right and that no memory is infallible right we we remember and and so i think so much of memory i'm not a brain scientist in any way <laughs> but so much of memory is feeling and uh, and i think that's a place where oral history sometimes by historians and i think that this is still something that's evolving but historians kind of look at oral history um, or have in the past as like, mm, you know, people's memories. I don't know about that. And, um, and I think we have to continue to make the case that uh, it's, it is, it's just as valid and, um, but it has to be presented as oral history, right? And as this, um, co-created um, product where the the interviewer is just as much as someone writing a book is guiding the story in a particular direction I mean the interviewer is in, in no way separate from that story that's being told and that's that, that is the same with a, a museum exhibition 
uh, you know, the curator selects the objects to tell a particular story and not everything can be included. So what is being left out? Why is it being left out? How intentional is that? And what is, what can be read between the lines when we're looking at either traditional history, oral history, a museum exhibition? So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's something I think about in terms of the relationships between what's considered to be traditional history and oral history. And every answer is an answer to the question. I think uh, you, you joke about not being a brain scientist. And um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about personalizing facts or personalizing information or really just getting into the, the, the root of someone's psyche or soul or memory is that it does make us all brain scientists in a way. And, and I think it's sort of an interesting thing when you start to talk about oral histories as being selective things between an interviewer and an interviewee. Um, also just encouraging people to talk to people about stories, even in informal settings, right? And then we all become each other's brain scientists because we're all in this world having valid experiences. So I, I, I think it's you're raising a lot of really interesting things to think about the different layers of formality and the different layers of, you know, trying to engage with the reality of memory in the past. Um, that can all be sort of prompted by this idea of looking at oral histories as valid pieces of historic information. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, oral history in a way is democratizing, right? It's it, it's giving the authority for for historical stories. It's giving that that power, that authority back to the people who have lived it and allowing them to tell their own story and not have letting someone else tell their story for them. And, and I think that raises a lot of interesting questions when you're talking about access to the information. You know, where where does this information live? How is it produced? How is it funded? Um, I know that, uh, again, going back to the idea of historical information being something that feels a little bit off-putting to some and making it more inviting and appealing as something that is fun to learn about and fun to listen to. Um, but it might, you know we had talked a little bit offline about the idea of access in, in other types of settings and places moving beyond the digital. Um, and, you know, I'm really curious just uh, again, as a, a, a resident in this field, but who also lives a normal life, you know, what are some settings or some examples of places and spaces where you think that accessing this information might be inspiring or might be appealing? Yeah, well, it seems like that um, the project that you have been working on and have installed at Fort Worden, Fort Words, is a perfect example, right? It it's utilizing um, oral histories, it's historic quotes from the mouths of the people that lived it, and it's combining a creative um, media and a creative perspective with this historical data and information. And that is, that's where, when I was looking to leave Seattle and, you know, and, and wanted a smaller town, there's this museum of art and history. It's like, hmm, that's actually not that common of a combination for a museum, particularly, particularly a small institution. And, and I think 
in particular, artists have um, the ability and should be given the opportunity to, to help us understand history and access history in ways we would not normally think to. And so your project is, is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, I'm at a state park and I'm there for any number of reasons, but more than likely I'm not there so that I can access oral history through writing on the wall, on, on, right? On the walls of just this sort of semi-passive experience. And, and that, yeah, that, the artist's ability, I think, to um, help us reshape and access history in really unexpected ways and help us be curious about wanting to know more. Um, that is really exciting. I mean, that is, that's beautiful. And I haven't seen your installation yet, but I'm really, really um, looking forward to going and taking a look and experiencing it for myself. And, and my son is six, he's not yet a reader. But, you know, I, I think about young readers who might come across this content as they're exploring the park and how that might influence their interest in history or where these stories come from. And, and ultimately what oral history is about and what I think connecting artists and, his, and his, historical content is about too is promoting people to ask more questions. And, and that feels so important and relevant to right now. We need to be asking lots and lots of questions, hard questions about who we are and, and our role in the future of this place and this nation. And, and so, I mean, that, that puts a lot of weight and, and hopefully not burden, but it's, it's a, uh, it is something that I think is a is a place that artists can really step into and make an impact is helping us look at history through totally different eyes and the power to inspire i think is is a really magical um sentiment in all of this the whether it's an, an artist role in trying to inspire somebody to ask questions or dig a little deeper into something that they might not have otherwise been aware of or if it's the case of hearing an oral history and learning firsthand from the memory of somebody who lived through it to you know, prompt them to think about something in a different way or understand that facts aren't all hard and sometimes they actually relate to real people. Actually, all the time they're not hard and they relate to real people. Um, and it's, you know, the oral history itself is kind of the bridge between like the hard history and the human condition, right? It really brings those things together. And I think just understanding that through any any lens whether it's a, a an interview recorded interview or it's just you know a, a perspective on something or somebody whispering something in your ear about something they remembered or a phone call with a relative i mean there are a thousand ways that you can cat uh, catalog what an oral history might be and i think one of the things that's most exciting to me to talk with you about is just the the interest you've taken in promoting something so important, not even as a collection of these specific histories, but as an idea of their value. 
And I think that that's something that, you know, if everybody kind of worked a little bit more on valuing the, the collective memories of people who lived through certain things, we really get a better picture of what we're, what we're talking about historically. So I wanted to ask um, specifically about the, the oral history archive at JCHS. Um, how did that particular project get started and, and what types of, you know, what are the eras we're looking at in terms of years? When was that information collected? What kind of inspired that whole, that whole project? Yeah, um, what I know about the JCHS oral history collection is um, it was primarily the, the bulk of the collection before just this last year, we added quite a few more, but the, initially there was um, a, a large collecting effort in the 80s. That was for the Washington State Centennial. This is 1980s. And uh, they a group of folks, and I believe they, they had grant funding because they did an incredible job for the time, using the resources of the time, in a Jefferson County-wide collecting project. And these oral histories are incredible. And they were able to have a pretty broad reach into the county, and they were able to transcribe all of these oral histories into bound volumes. And that's really significant because transcription is something that often gets left to or left off of projects that don't have enough budget or um, it's quite expensive, particularly if you're hiring it out. And so and, and and is really still having words in black and white on a piece of paper. It's like that could actually last for the next 100 years. <laughs> it really could, or longer, much, much longer, right? And um, so that's really the way that the, in terms of preservation, like that's transcription is really quite important. So that they did that and we have those volumes at the research center is amazing. There's still work certainly that needs to be done, as I mentioned, in terms of providing more access. But that collection, in addition to some collecting that was done more recently over the last 10 years um, uh, by some folks who were active on our board of trustees and some other volunteers at the institution, uh, we had uh, approximately 300 oral histories in the collection. And, and then very recently, the Friends of Fort Warden, who have also had a very active collecting project over many years, they um, have provided their collection of almost 300 oral histories to our archive. So the combination of those two leaves us at around 600 stories and there's a lot to be discovered. I've been at our organization for just two years and as has our archivist, we, were, we both came to JCHS at the same time. It, it feels like we've barely scratched the surface of what these collections contain. And we're really interested in getting the community more involved, but we also recognize that we need to continue to collect, um, that there will be significant stories that will be lost in our community if we don't continue to actively collect. So that sense of urgency is sort of there in addition to really wanting to provide more access to this amazing archive. Uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about the oral history collection at JCHS. Um, because the bulk of the collection, if you think about sort of the age of the people who may have been interviewed in the 1980s, 
they were probably in their between you know in their 70s to 90s that tends to be the range where folks get interviewed and so they were likely born in the very early part of the 20th century and Port Townsend was a very different place at that time so uh, as was Fort Worden just a baby at that time right so there's, there's all kinds of content in there that can give us perspective on how this land and place was very, very, very different. In, in Shelley Levin's fantasy world, how, how, how do these histories become more of, you know, every resident in town or, or even more regionally than that? How does it become part of their everyday interest? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's very multifaceted because we all learn in different ways and we all like to access different kinds of media. So I can share a couple of the examples uh, or one in particular that I just did early on um, and then some dreams that I have about how we might provide more access. Um, so we uh, partnered with Main Street and Olympic Peninsula STEAM to republish a downtown walking tour booklet. And it was an example of something where you could certainly just write down the histories of the buildings and leave it at that. But I decided to add in uh, quotes from oral histories and include those with each of the, the pages on the building histories so that people as they're using the walking tour booklet could get that first person voice inserted in there why this building or this space was important to that person or or something else that was significant about it and so that was just a small example of ways that we can use this uh, archival material to illuminate more and so we're, we're working on a walking tour booklet for Point Hudson now, and we'll be doing that same thing with that project. And um, I would love, so in, in Seattle, I uh, was a, a radio show host with this radio station called Hollow Earth Radio. Uh, it's a low power FM radio. And I had a show called Total Recall, which was d devoted to oral history and a long-form interview uh, show with people who are 70 and older. And that is something that I, you know, there's never enough time in the day, right, to pursue one's passion and to do all these things. But it is definitely something, I think the radio, just, I guess, just to partly answer your question, one of the other ways we can provide access. People listen to the radio, and the radio is widely accessible. It's free, by and large. I mean, you have to have a radio. But it's um, it's not cable TV, so it it's a, a wonderful place, I think, to start sharing these stories because you can literally hit play and people can just listen. And audio quality is gonna be all over the place. I mean, I think it always will, um, but there's something about listening to an old record with that scratchiness in the background that like, ooh, you know, and I think people like, that's like the patina. And I think that can that can serve the purpose of the of listening to oral history perfectly fine. So the radio would be a place I, I would love to see more oral history shared. 
And then I think that we um, have an opportunity within our programming to continue to share oral histories. So we recently had a history happy hour program that we did where we partnered with Ajax Cafe. They led us through a cocktail tutorial and then I provided a presentation on the prohibition era in Jefferson County. And I just tapped into our oral history collection, found I think four or five oral history clips of people talking about prohibition in Jefferson County and what it was like at that time. And I just played those for our, for our program audience with a little bit of context around each one and people loved it. So I think we, you know, it's, it is such a flexible medium and people love listening to stories. And so it can, you know, we could do a million things with it. The sky's the limit. And as I mentioned, like working with artists to access this material is very exciting to me. So in my dreamy world, we would have an artist in residency program. <laughs> and maybe that's in, in partnership with Centra. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but we would have a formal program where artists can access our archives access oral histories and and do projects it, you know contribute to our landscape just like yours is doing and and use this content so it, it it's really the power of human voice right not yeah. just in terms of uh celebrating or making really clear the significance of history but just also as a way to connect us again to a reality that's past present and future i mean yeah, I, you know, and, and I wanted to say it made me think too when you were talking about how kind of when we're kids, you know, it's like, oh, history is so boring. And I know I thought that too. But it really is all about connecting it to, to present day to that, that either that young person or even that adults current lived experience. So right, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And suddenly, everyone wants to know about the Spanish flu. That's the example, right, of that's when it matters, when it connects to now. And so as a museum or oral historians or, you know, art, even artists, it's how do we make the content we have, which is vast, and just connect it to now. And then people will become interested and, and, cur and hopefully curious. And, and want more. So that feels like that's that's really the key. And in particular for youth, right? I, I really believe that. Well, thank you so much, Erin. I, I really appreciate being invited on and, and being a part of your project over these last few months. And I really, really look forward to hearing from the community, their response to the work in the park and, uh, and experiencing it myself. So thank you so much for bringing that here to our, our little town. Appreciate yeah. it. And it's a great pleasure to have you on here. And it's a really great pleasure to play with the idea of oral histories as a way to inspire people to dig back into their pasts, look at their presence, and uh, hopefully work together to build a better future. So thank you. Thank you. So we've just heard from two of our inspired voices that have been directly involved in helping make this project possible. We hope to bring you several more in a second part of this podcast. Um, but for now, I just want to thank you all for listening. Uh, hope that you find this content as fascinating as we do. Um, and just really hope that you have a chance to make it out 
to the park to see Fort Ward's firsthand. Yes, thank you, Aaron. As I've said already, it's been a pleasure having you here, and thank you for bringing in these additional voices. I am very excited about this podcast as a platform for projects spilling out and for contextual information to be illuminating what it's like when artists come to this campus and what it's like in general for artists right now. And so thank you for helping to demonstrate what this can look like. Stay tuned, everybody, and we'll be following up. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, Program Manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley, and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's Executive Director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our Executive Producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives, and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020, Centrum Foundation. Thank you.